0: welcome to the podcast i'm karen weaver today we're going to discuss the explosion of college sports journalism and in particular the incredible work being done by independent writers for many this is a labor of love for some lucky ones they are able to make a living out of their entrepreneurial efforts subscriptions range from free up to nine or ten dollars a month promising to deliver unique and well-researched content to the sports industry and their followers my guest today is andy andy writer and editor of the newsletter, Out of Bounds. I have been following Andy's detailed work for as long as it's been available, and I am intrigued by not only his unique writing style, but also the kinds of journalistic rabbit holes he finds himself in. He works for Turner Sports as a men's basketball reporter alongside his weekly newsletter. He has worked previously, had been published in Sports Illustrated, Sporting News, Stadium, the Indianapolis Star, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and Athletic Director you. He's a proud graduate of Indiana University with a degree in journalism. And Andy, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Karen. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, this is awesome. So let's, let's start with a little bit of breaking news that you're gonna you're going to have tomorrow morning, August, uh, January 15th in your newsletter. You wrote on Twitter a couple of hours ago, two ACC women's basketball programs have now opted out of the season. For tomorrow's newsletter, you're writing about the ACC Schools Faculty Athletics Committee that, quote-unquote, found every excuse when a member asked the committee to consider whether continuing the season is responsible. Tell us more about this story.
1: Yeah, so in the wake of Florida men's basketball player Keontae Johnson, him collapsing on December 12th against Florida State, um, you know, my curiosity was what are athletic directors potentially doing or what are they discussing in the wake of that collapse. And obviously this is a very sensitive issue um, that we don't know exactly what happened. And I think that's the biggest question for me is it's not, this is out of of our range of our scope of what exactly caused this collapse. But to me, it's almost, it's not just the question itself of what happened, but why aren't people asking that question? So kind of going meta of the question about the question. So one email that I found was that uh, it's a professor named Jay Smith. So he works um, for University of North Carolina He specializes in, I think it's early France uh, and French culture, but he's also taught a course called Big Time College Sports and the Rights of Athletes. And he is on the Faculty Athletics Committee at the University of North Carolina. And so they work with the chancellor and kind of discussing big picture issues on athletics and students. And, uh, you know, it can vary certainly from school to school on what discussions they have and what's their impact, but kind of almost like an advisory council, if you will. So he sent on December 23rd, which was actually, that was the day that the first men's basketball program that attempted to start the season then opted out, which was Chicago State. So on December 23rd, he sent an email to the committee and he said, I personally believe it's irresponsible to continue playing college basketball right in the teeth of the worst virus spikes we're going to see over the entire history of this pandemic with numerous players and evidently at least one team already affected in serious ways by the viral spread. No less luminary than Mike Krzyzewski evidently feels the same way. I want to urge that we as a committee, at least the faculty members on the committee, consider A, whether we collectively believe it is responsible for universities to continue to do what they're doing, and B, if we need to issue a statement about it. If other players collapse because of myocarditis in the weeks slash months ahead, to say nothing of the obvious long-term risks, I for one will feel terribly guilty for not having tried harder to stop this. So that was his email initially. And actually, I reached out to Jay and I said, Hey, you know, came across your email, the public records request. Uh, would love to hear more if you have any, you know, additional updates or insight on the issue. And he responded back. And I'm just I'm scrolling here. Sorry. So they met, um, I don't have the exact day, but sometime in early to mid January. So maybe like a week and a half ago or so. And his follow up, he said that. There were few members of the FAC who were even interested in asking follow-up questions. This was after they had a doctor from the athletic department who met with the committee and gave them a presentation. Uh, Jason, it was a very long presentation. So he said that very few members even had follow-up questions. Then he said, quote, there was, to be candid, no, in all caps, no appetite for disrupting basketball here, none. That is, other than mine. As a committee, we found every excuse the players want to play They could get sick if they weren't playing, our doctors are great, et cetera, not to act. It was dispiriting, even though this was typical of faculty athletic committees all across the country, end quote. So there it just shows, and, you know, the bigger picture for me, once again, it's it's not just a question of what happened to Keontae, um, because, you know, I write in the story that I think that, um, once again, as a non-medical professional, I think that maybe the best case scenario is that this has nothing to do with COVID-19, that i think if we could um, extrapolate you would hope that this is just a terrible isolated incident right where it's just it's his genetic makeup it was the exertion level on that one day that hopefully it was a one-time awful incident that he can hopefully recover fully from and get back on the court and live a healthy full life because if it is connected then you do kind of the big picture analysis of who else could fall under that whatever happened to Keontae. Who else could this apply to? And this is a virus that I believe, I believe as of yesterday, um, the New York Times numbers was like 230 some thousand new cases reported. And so you look at even if young, otherwise healthy adults could be affected by this, it gets to a really uh, a troubling place. So it's not, this isn't trying to create a war over medical records we don't have, but it's almost it's a question of why aren't more people asking the questions, right? It's the question yeah. about the question. And so to use the anecdote from from Jay and from UNC is that, you know, he said these are professors, these are people who work in higher education, that, you know, this isn't the head coach, this isn't the athletic trainer, this is people that, sure, they work at a big-time D1 institution that has successful, you know, a men's basketball program and other successful programs, but it's like they don't have that same stake that you'd expect of, this isn't a head coach saying it, this isn't the AD saying it, this is people that, um, you know, their paycheck doesn't depend on them winning games or winning championships, and he said they had no appetite for changing. And once again, it wasn't, um, you could tell that Jay felt the personal uh, qualms of should we have a season, but his initial point was like, should we consider this? It wasn't, we need to stop tomorrow right. or today. It was, we at least have this discussion. And I also, I measured um, using Google Trends, you can see the popularity of certain search terms. And so just as being someone who's very online and working you know, in digital media, I'm curious of How are searches for just the name Keontae Johnson, how have those changed since the days since? And the way that Google Trends works is that the peak interest, it's labeled as a 100. So, you know, maximum volume. And so 50 would be 50 percent, a value of one would be one percent. And so the day after his collapse, uh, December 13th, that was for the 30 day span from December 11th through January 10th. The 13th was this maximum search day, so a value of 100. And I found that eight days after that, it was a value of three, and nine days after was a value of one. So basically a little, and he was still in the hospital, I think, Uh, he was released 10 days after. So he was still hospitalized the day where there was that 3% search interest. And so basically it looks like, you know, within a week and a half, two weeks after his collapse and his hospitalization, is it essentially, Google, its own analytics, it, the number is so small, I can barely track how much search interest there was. You know, some days it says less than one, um, so just marginal interest. And it, it's it's really a shame because I Googled, I think this was two days ago. So basically, I think 29 days after his collapse, just typed in Keontae Johnson, press search. And the number one, you know, Google has like the recommended questions of like people also ask. So the number one question was, is Keontae Johnson still alive? Oh, wow. And that was the number one. This was just... This isn't, um, you know, some media scheme. This is is Google's analytics of like, what are people searching, right? Right. And you know that if people search Keontae Johnson, the number one question they want to ask is, is he still alive? The next question is, how tall is he? The third question was, how old is he? So it's, you know, it's basically, it's almost like your your NBA draft profile of, okay, how tall is he? Uh, When was he born? And then, you know, is he still alive? Um, So that's where for me, it's just. Once again, it's not, uh, we're not trying to weaponize or I'm not trying to weaponize someone's um, you know, health status or medical records, but it's the big picture of why aren't people asking the question?
0: You know, it's, I don't know whether that search result uh, led to um, uh, them releasing a statement that he's now coaching and they had a very energetic picture of him clapping on the sidelines, you know, urging his teammates on and it sort of gave the impression was, He's doing great. He's here, coaching every day of practice. No need to worry. Nothing to see here. Move along now. But it doesn't address what you're asking, which is what happened.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then also just to add this in too, just to in case there was any, uh, you know, any part of this that wasn't clear. This was um, what it was. The Gainesville Sun. So they were citing it was a source with firsthand knowledge. They said that he was diagnosed with acute myocarditis. That quote that may be related to an earlier infection for COVID-19. So just in case that wasn't clear that there was, um, which we have no reason to dispute that, that there was you know, a direct source that they're quoting. Um, and so once again, this has been a disease. This was part of the whole, the big 10 impact hole decision back in August, right? Of what's the connection and how significant is the connection from COVID-19 to myocarditis. So once again, it's, it's tough because it's, it's, the, it's the nation or at least you know, the whole point is there were a lot of people initially that were really concerned and understandably but based on the metrics we have and anecdotes like Jay Smith that you wouldn't see and yeah. just individual media coverage or the lack thereof is that it feels like it, it took what a week, if that, for the interest just to plummet. And, you know, I, I cite those reasons like, you know, it's the fact that he got released and like you mentioned that he's now a coach and you're seeing him. So maybe it's just a subconscious where, okay, you know, we see him, he's out of the hospital, he's on two feet, he's smiling. There was a video of him dancing with teammates, like all, you know, positive signs. Um, but that shouldn't erase severe questions, too, about, you know, what happened. Like, why, why is he a coach? You know, it's great to see him out there on the sideline. And, you know, he's in an unofficial student coach role. But there's still the biggest question is, why is he a coach? And then the question I'm asking is, why aren't, people, why aren't more people asking that question? Asking the
0: question? And it gets into two things. One thing I do want to say is I had a, re- a conversation with a cardiologist back in late August, early September. I said, OK, this whole thing with myocarditis is starting to scare me. What are you thinking about? he goes, and this is just one cardiologist's opinion, but he said, you know, there are a lot of viruses that can cause myocarditis. COVID-19 is not the only one. So that's something that we have to be aware is that the flu could cause it, the cold could cause it, a variety of other things could, could cause it. But secondly, it gets to more your point about the right to know. What are we allowed to know as the general public about his condition? I was just having this conversation with someone else. We were talking about FERPA. And and, and colleges and universities seem to have vastly different understandings of what FERPA covers, what they're allowed to release, what they're not allowed to release. That's got to be frustrating for you as a journalist to try to find these things out.
1: It is, and especially this case here with Keontae is that this is actually one of the, not not rare situations, but this is one of the um, undisputably, Uh, one of the situations where whatever FERPA, HIPAA, all those laws, they, they should reasonably uphold here. Like we should not have access to his medical information. We shouldn't get that in public records requests. We shouldn't get that just from an email. Like all those hold up, but it's also the case of the potential, the ramifications and the impact of, even though we don't have a legal obligation to have access to that information, the greater good should still dictate that if there is takeaway, you know, positive or negative, if they say that there's clearly, there's no connection between COVID-19 and, you know, his hospitalization, we should know that too, right? That should be uh, reassuring. It should be settling. So it goes both ways or if there is a clear connection, we should know that. And if there's clearly not, we should also, that's that's reassuring. That's good news, right? So it, it cuts both ways. And it's, yeah, it's tough because we don't need, like there was the whole the Adam Schefter Tweet from like four or five years ago where he had Jason Pierre Paul's hospital record when he blew up his finger with a firework. Right. And there's a different patient too who was not an NFL player, just some random American. And I think that his part of his information was tweeted by Adam Schefter. And so it's not just the player, but it's also it's some random guy out there who's just living. And now his part of his record is out there on Twitter. And it's like, we shouldn't have access to some athlete's medical history or their lab results or stuff like that. But it's also, there's a greater good in the public interest of. the school should, there should be a duty and obligation to share what they know. Um, And now it's just, you have to put your faith in the institution in his family, his doctors, uh, you know, their assistant ADs, the doctors, that they're going to share that information. So there's no reason to suspect they won't, but it's also, is there being the pressure applied that will then compel them to share that, you know, in a timely and and transparent basis? You
0: know, I hear two things. I hear one, um, we want to not be afraid to have the conversation, which is what Jay Smith was saying to his colleagues. And why don't we at least have the conversation because there seems to be a real fear and that's why people shut it down. And then the second thing is maybe we don't know enough yet. And that's not the answer we want to give because if we don't know enough yet, then it calls in the question, why are we doing this if we don't know enough yet? So schools seem to be backing away from just saying no comment.
1: It's just easier not to comment. Yeah, no, it's great. We need to say, you know, this is FERPA or this is HIPAA. You know, sorry, we can't comment. And I think it was the New York Times. There's some stories out there of the summer of just the level to which schools often hide behind these laws. And once again, they're, they're important when, you know, applied properly. These are important laws. We shouldn't be giving out, you know, students' academic information or medical records. Like the, the laws exist for a reason. But it's the the application that use. And I think also at the level to which media sites and um, just journalists maybe either don't know the laws well enough themselves, or they just feel the, the pressure of like, okay, well, you know, big state, you said that I can't have this information due to FERPA, I'm not going to push back. Or if they right. did, and if they have, you know, the financial means, the legal means, they could probably win that fight oftentimes, but if they don't know any better or feel, you know, bullied by the school, they might just back down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So since we're talking about some alphabet soup here, we're talking about FERPA, we're talking about HIPAA, let's talk about FOIA, which is Freedom of Information Act requests. And you use that a lot to support your writing. So tell, tell our listeners who may not know, how does that process work from your perspective as a journalist?
1: Well, it's certainly not a glamorous process. It's lots of, <laughs> you know, late Sunday nights where I'm going to say I'll send 20 to 50 emails tonight And it's really, it's kind of a shotgun approach. So basically what FOIA, you know, Freedom of Information Act, is that it allows these state universities as, you know, public funded institutions, is that they have a duty with the state public records laws that there are certain documents, correspondences, contracts that are are public knowledge, they're public uh, records. And so there are exceptions, once again, getting back to, you know, HIPAA and FERPA and all that stuff. But in terms of, you know, employment contracts, uh, emails, um, text messages, contract, like all this different stuff, a lot of that is public record. And it may be subject to redactions. It may cost money at times to fulfill the request or to, you know, to get the the records you're looking for. But it's really, it's kind of, it's a basic checks and balances uh, function for, for journalists, for the public. Like, you don't have to be a journalist. You could be, you know, John or Jane Doe out there and just, it's uh uh, the barrier to entry is not high. Like once you learn how to do it, it's very simple. Um, the laws vary by state. Some you have to be an in-state resident and you have to prove, you know, you have residents in that state. But it's all, it's a similar process of basically how specific can you get of uh, which employees you're looking for, for their emails or which, what's the date range, what dates, what are the key search terms. So for me, is it, you know, I, I should actually, I should go through and track like, what is my success rate or the hit rate because it may only be 20 or 30%, which is why I send so many. And you look at, you know, different conferences, different schools, different employees, and it might take a week. Um, You know, this Iowa story I published last week, they got back to me, I think like seven months later. So it's not a quick process. I mean, it can be, but it's not certainly for bigger requests and more um, potential information that's more sensitive to a school. They might certainly take their time in providing that information to a time where it's of less uh, news interest or less value to you as a reporter. But it's certainly it's one where um, you know I might send you know 20, 50, 80 a week. And then you know you wait one month, two months, six months, and then hopefully at that point, you know, maybe a quarter of those, you can use that information and hopefully um, you know, use it to boost a story, or you can find stuff, you know, a lot of times it's it's almost like playing Battleship, where you you know there's a certain thing of value in a certain area, right. And You have to get lucky, right? So there's probably Um, I think my newsletter, I've published almost 60 editions so far. And I would say that probably between 20 and 25 have been subjects where I was not looking for that information, but I simply just got lucky and found it. Like I was looking, you know, if I can say like, you know, hopefully a smart, interesting angle or story idea. And because I asked that question and filed that request, I just got lucky and found something else while I was there. And so it's not even, you know, you might have like a good idea going in, but you find an even better idea on the backside. So there's certainly, there's a benefit just to kind of showing up, just asking the question and then seeing what comes back to you.
0: That's very cool. So let's talk about the Iowa program. Uh, The football program's strength and conditioning coach came under fire back in August, I think it was, Um, And there was a lot of initial coverage, but then you picked up on some racist language behaviors by members, members of the football staff. And even the perception that the head coach was complicit in creating an environment where those behaviors went unchecked for years. Take us into this reporting into the FOIA's that you were able to get.
1: Yeah, so the initial allegations, this all started in the wake of George Floyd's killing in Minneapolis. So I believe it was, I think, June 1st, um, George Floyd was murdered on, I think, May 25th. So just in kind of, you know, the week following is that Iowa head coach Kirk Ferentz met with the team. I think that he read off a statement or had a statement prepared about um, just kind of the growth they could have both individually and as a team in terms of, you know, listening more, uh, learning and just trying to, you know, grow his people, grow his teammates, um, you know, all certainly commendable you know, goals and values. And of course, as you know, I wrote so many of the discussions about race in the last half decade in America, especially as regards, you know, to sports, they've centered around the idea of kneeling or not kneeling for the national anthem. And so I think that what Kirk Ferentz had said was that we either want to all kneel or have no one kneel. It's like, let's make this a team, a unified statement. And it was current Chicago Bears lineman, James Daniels, and he had quote tweeted a reporter's tweet about that sentiment. And he had said, if the team collectively decides to all kneel, to the effect of this would be a major step forward in terms of kind of progress and cultural improvement for Iowa. And that was kind of when uh, the first crack in the dam, if you will. And then a few days later, I think uh, it was June 3rd, was the first time there was a mention of former strength and conditioning coach Chris Doyle and his behavior. And I think the total number was like 55 or 60 former players, most of whom are black, who made these allegations. Um, Some specific, some just kind of more general about, uh, you know, there's a racial disparity and then some were more specific to, you know, certain coaches or certain you know, language or actions. And it certainly, it kind of created this culture and, um, you know, in the words, the allegations of, you know, there was this whole concept of the Iowa way, which is based around kind of the white Midwestern player, clean cut, um, suburban backgrounds. And it was one that black players felt like they couldn't fit that standard. And so there was an independent investigation. Um, It was the Kansas City-based law firm, Hush Blackwell. And they released a report, I think in September, it was a a 28-page report. And it basically was interesting, too, because it wasn't, the school didn't ask them to confirm the veracity of any of the claims. It was basically, can you go in and give us like a feeling of the culture and how players feel? So the metaphor I kind of thought of was like, the law firm, based on the way that I read this report, was that they were asked to go to the kitchen and take a temperature of the room, not find out, was there a fire on the stove? So uh-huh. it wasn't to determine, did these specifics happen? It was more of like, was it 105 degrees in there? You know, if that makes yeah. sense. Um, and it's actually, it was interesting too, because it said in the, in the main report, they noted there were four personnel reports additionally. Um, that were based on the specific claims. So I don't think, once again, it didn't determine, did they happen? But it went into like those specific allegations. And I've requested twice for those documents, um, both times denied in part due to FERPA. So back to kind of bring this conversation full circle. And uh, you know, in this bigger report, they mentioned that there were three coaches who specifically recited repeatedly as kind of um, the ones that conducted the bullying, um, the racial language, the, the very specific allegations. So you would assume that three of those four kind of separate reports are those three individuals. And then you'd probably assume the fourth one is someone in a position of power above those three. I would, I would assume if that's a reasonable assumption that um, whether that's a coach or it's an administrator or it's someone at the university level, um, that's my best guess. So that's what we're left with is that by the time that this, you know, re- uh, records request was fulfilled and sent back, the season's over. So I mentioned like, you know, at this point, Iowa, they won their last six games they finished 15th in the playoff rankings. They can kind of now move on, and they can sell that we're on a six-game winning streak. Uh, we were a top 15 team. All this stuff, and wins are great, but it's also like the the way that the program moved on. Because it's also ironic that there was only I, I believe only one coach, which was the strength coach Chris Doyle, that left the program in the immediate aftermath of these allegations, and he signed a separation agreement. He walked away with 1.1 million dollars. Uh, He was previously the highest paid strength and conditioning coach in the country at $800,000 per year. Um, So you ask, you know, what does that agreement mean, you know, legally Um, and some kind of the bigger picture questions about the volume and the the nature of those allegations are pretty substantial, I would say. Um, And people mentions in this report that there's former players that said, you know, to the effect of, this is not just a Chris Doyle, uh, allegation or issue this is not just a culture based around uh, our belief about his behavior and then he's the only one that loses or that has since moved on from the school however you want to phrase his separation agreement so it's interesting the fact that uh, the players said that to the uh, to the investigation to the reporters for the investigation and then you had fans too in the emails that i uncovered they also said like you know, don't let this be just, and not all of them, but many said, like, don't let this be just Chris Doyle. Some asked for head coach Kirk Ferentz to lose his job. Mm-hmm. Some asked for Kirk Ferentz's son, Brian, the offensive coordinator, that he should lose his job. Um, you know, one, one fan went as far as to say, we all know that Brian won't lose his job and we know why, you know, making allegations of nepotism. And this fan wrote that to the athletic director, Gary Barta. So this has all been, you um, not hidden, but it's been a, you know, a long process If it's taken seven months for kind of the full picture of the players, the former players, the fans, and, you know, in part, uh, just due to the delay of the fact that, you know, I submitted this back in early to mid June and it came back in January. And at this point it's, you know, number 15, Iowa, six and two. And so what does this all mean? And has this gotten lost?
0: Well, it's a good question. And, and oftentimes we see uh, football programs sort of expunge the, The most obvious person and then just kind of close ranks and stop talking about it and hope it goes away. That's why I thought your the timing of this was interesting because it's like what really has been done to address the issues that you say a number of athletes brought up and over a consistent period of time not just on one particular season but over and Kirk Ferentz is one of the longest serving head football coaches in the country so is this systemic in, in that program, systemic in, in the department? I mean, those are always good questions, especially in light of George Floyd and everything that we've been going through with racial racial justice this year.
1: Definitely. And you know, to me it was, it was ironic because, you know, in, in a very specific context of ranking football teams, which maybe there was a weird joy in getting angry about that this year of just the distraction of my team's better than your team or your team's better than my team, whatever. With the fact that, you know, Barta, he was named the college football playoff chairman for the selection committee. And so this guy that um, I think that he was hired, I believe in 2006, 2007, somewhere in that range. And this wasn't the first uh, incident or allocation or settlement regarding diversity and inclusion or, you know, player safety. There's been issues related to uh, rowing, I believe, field hockey. There was the case of Rabdo back in 2011 when 13 football players were hospitalized. You know, some had discolored urine. This is the whole of the, the kidney—not um, disease, but you know, kidney issue where it's potential kidney damage um, related to kind of overexertion and, and you know too much training. And so it's kind of it's almost the irony that once again a lot of these things were alleged, and the school's own you know independent report they didn't look to confirm if this stuff happened. It was more of like what's what's the culture, what's the mood around the program but you take some of the issues that happened the summer that were alleged, plus the previous ones over the past, you know, 10 or 15 years. And then you have, you know, he's on national TV once a week and he's and I wrote that, you know, in the context of ranking football teams, the reporters I thought actually asked uh, him some very tough questions this year about why some of the smaller schools um, didn't potentially get the, the respect or the credit they deserved where right. the bigger schools did. And so in the context of, once again, just ranking football teams, he was asked tough questions, but in the scheme of the stuff that happened in June, the stuff that happened in 2011, the stuff that happened before that, is it ranking football teams? It's it's fun, it's part of the sport, but it's not. in the context of what 2020 was, that was such a small issue. And so it's like you have, and I, I get that ESPN was not having him on there to discuss allegations of racism or allegations of nepotism or about the settlement agreement, all this stuff. But it's just like it was the, the irony of like you have someone that potentially deserves to be asked numerous difficult questions on yeah. diversity, on racism, on allegations of nepotism. And he's being asked about number seven Cincinnati, which in the context, that makes sense. But it was just it was the bigger picture of this guy. There's a lot that could and should be asked of him and a lot that has been asked. But there's still more that needs to be answered. And yeah. he's now the the face of the playoff committee, which is a really I think just the paradox of those two different sides is really interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's absolutely astute journalism. Let me briefly ask you about this latest newsletter that you, (laughs) you decided to go looking at bios, you know, just the way people write their bios on the websites. And you had an interesting journey counting up the number of times certain uh, names were mentioned. And it got me thinking about these, I was calling them trigger words or phrases The college athletic administrators use that signify somehow that they have more authority or more knowledge than others? Is this a better status or a higher status because you have football mentioned more often in your bio? What was your takeaway from that?
1: Yeah, you know, this is actually, and not to divert us off course too much, but it's actually the timing is interesting because the reason why I thought of this idea, it actually dates back to, I think almost two and a half years ago. So when Urban Meyer was still the head coach at Ohio State, is that they had the former wide receivers coach, Zach Smith, who was alleged to have um, committed, you know, domestic violence or domestic abuse. And he was a grandson of Earl Bruce, the former Ohio State head coach. In Urban Meyer's bio, and I think you can still find this actually to this day, is that there were probably six or seven sentences, like three paragraphs. that were devoted um, on Meyer's bio to Earl Bruce of how basically he had called him, you know, the second biggest mentor in his life besides his father or like, you know, the second biggest father figure in his life. And I found that was maybe quietly telling the fact that there was alleged to have been improper reporting or a lack of reporting of what Urban Meyer knew about the Zach Smith allegations. And when you know that those have been alleged and you know that Urban places a supreme respect and confidence and admiration of Earl Bruce and that Zach Smith is then, you know, Earl Bruce's grandson, kind of the transitive property there I thought that was potentially telling of just how things unfolded. Yeah, so I'm actually I'm glad that I waited until this moment to kind of look at 80 bios of just what 2020 was for college athletics of programs getting cut. you had staffers making 40k or 60k a year who might get laid off, who might have a salary reduction that hurts them a lot more than the coaches making 250,000 or you know 1.2 million or whatever the case may be. And it was this conflict, you know, social justice uh, athlete move, like all these different events just kind of, you know, compiled in the same six or or nine month kind of like stretch. And so it it brings us to the case where you have these bios and I don't know, you know, you ask what, like, what language is used to kind of show, um, you know, extra knowledge or influence or power. And, you know, I don't know what the actual my mom discusses like intent versus impact, right? Of like, what are someone's uh, intentions and what's the impact of their actions? And I think the intent, you know, it, at a basic level, it's probably pretty similar as you and I. If we're going to update our resume or update our LinkedIn description, you know, I don't know that the average AD, their process is that much different than you and I of like, you want to show off your best traits, your best accomplishments. You want specific action verbs. You want metrics, a, you know, when available. So a certain, um, for them, it's often, you know, money raised or a certain, square footage for a facility, stuff like that, where, you know, for me, I might talk about uh, subscribers for my newsletter, or page views, or stuff like that, so it's all kind of the same process, but I think for them, it's just, it's more eyeballs, it's a bigger platform, uh, more money involved, obviously, and so it was just basically taking, you know, they're kind of finely worded, like, this wasn't an accident, like, these aren't just word salads, of either they spent hours probably pouring over these, the bios, or it was a communication staffer, or PR person that helped them, like, walk through okay what was your career like you know what how did you get to this step and what led you to get hired here and all this stuff and so when you kind of basically take all the the action verbs and the achievements and the honors and then basically just analyze that like which words and phrases were used the most often that's when you find out it's like okay well football is going to get mentioned six times per bio and you're going to have uh you know an average of four dollar signs per biography and all this stuff so i don't know you know what's I think the actions behind the words are real. So when they mention a certain um, you know, a fundraising arm of the athletic department, or there's a certain, you know, AD of the year award they won. I think the actions behind that are certainly telling, but it's it's kind of tough to parse like what what words are more important or which ones carry more weight. Um and that gets the whole impact. Like we know the intent of like you're trying to, you know, show off the best side of yourself. You might want to um get a bigger, better job, or you know, get a raise someday, get certain awards but what is the actual impact of the way that you wrote that? Um, It might get you in the door like a resume would for any job of like, there's a pile of like the throwaway pile. There's the immediate yes pile. Like we want to contact them back. And then, you know, the maybe pile if the definite yes pile is too small, we might go to the maybe pile and then find someone else. So I think it might, uh, it might get you in the door to a certain, a bigger job or a certain honor or might get you considered for, you know, the college football playoff committee, whatever the case may be. But I don't know the actual you know, if you use this verb versus that verb, or if you talk about swimming more than the average AD, like, I don't know what the, the actual impact is, you know?
0: Well, you, you just actually hit on something, because, you know, as somebody who oversaw human resources in a division one athletic department has hired numerous coaches over the year years, it got me thinking about, you know, when we scan and that's what we do, we give most resumes and, and uh, cover letters, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, we're looking for keywords so if someone who wants to be an AD puts in their resume, you know I've had this experience with football, I've had this experience with football, emphasizing the word football, 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 and then maybe fundraising, 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 does that get more um, weight in someone's consideration for how they're perceived by not only the person who's hiring them, but also the general fan base who thinks, okay, they either have credibility or they don't have credibility if they've never worked with football then how can you possibly run a department with football um so it just got me thinking about you know how people present themselves and the kinds of words that can lead to possibly somebody being hired and somebody not being hired i thought it was a very interesting study
1: yeah no i think that's smart the whole concept of like directing uh your work you know your resume your appearance based on the client or based on the audience so if you're going to work for You know, an SEC institution, yeah, you better hammer home football, you better hammer home, you know, boosters and fundraising facilities, that kind of stuff. But then, like, let's say you're going to a big E school, you better prioritize basketball, Um, you know, still fundraising and boosters, but like the same football, not that the skills that you use in maybe a football athletic department or, uh, you know, in the department at a football school would still matter. But if you're going to Villanova, which, you know, they have FCS football, so it's not that football doesn't matter. But, right. you know, if, if you know that they're kind of their crown jewel is men's basketball, is that you might want to cater, you know, your skill set, your audience towards that. Uh, exactly. If it's, you know, Xavier, which doesn't have football, you might want to hammer home men's and women's basketball or, you right. know, men's soccer or baseball. Right. And uh, I know Stanford actually, you know, they cut, I think, what, it was maybe 16 or 18 sports oh, um, they also it. It last year. But so, you know, a Pac-12 school, maybe it's more of, um, it's the breadth of, I've worked with 26 different sports in my career. And uh, maybe you mentioned more of women's sports of, you know, our women's track and field team won three conference championships in four years, or it's our, you know, it's our international student population or student athlete population. Like, I do think there's a takeaway there in terms of how, like, if I apply to a job, if there's one job where it's, it's covering Clemson. I wouldn't word that resume and cover letter the same as one that's maybe covering high school sports in California, right? Like you need to know your audience and how you, it would still be the same me and the same like my background, but I think the way that you would pick and choose, you know, your resume, your highlights, uh, maybe what metrics or what, you know, what experiences you discuss in a cover letter, I think that certainly changes.
0: Absolutely, couldn't agree more. When I applied, I was in Division I and then I worked in Division Three. and I, I know that the, the folks in Division Three were glad that I had managed a $12 million budget, but that didn't matter in Division Three. What mattered is I was student athlete focused and, and that type of thing. Um, Andy, in the remaining time we have, a lot has come out of this last year, 2020. What have we learned from COVID-19, do you think, in the college sports perspective? And what would you like college presidents and trustees to have learned from your work that you've, you've been able
1: to do. Yeah, I think to kind of piggyback off that whole the biography story and to kind of use that is that I think we learned. Um, I don't know how much I think we did learn a lot, but I think a lot was it was made so obvious that we just we saw it for what it was um, just the, the whole college athletics ecosystem about who holds power, what sports really matter, where the money goes, where the money doesn't go. Yeah. Is it kind of to use this, you know, this AD biography story is that we learned that yeah football matters a whole heck of a lot. And at a lot of schools, wrestling or tennis or track and field may not matter too much, you know, no matter what they say. And not that it brings them joy to cut those sports or to not renovate the stadium, but you just, you know, what, what's the cash cow, what truly matters. Um, so I think, you know, the, the, uh, the metaphor I used was, it was almost like the, the 2020, you know, calendar year and the 2021 academic year, it was almost like a page in where's Waldo, but it's just Waldo on a snow covered mountain, like no other features, no people. It's just, you, you can't mistake it. Like, it's just, it's there, it's, it's laid bare, like, you know, and it's not, it's not that everyone's evil. It's not that they're all, uh, out to cut sports or to make, you know, lives difficult for, you know, uh female athletes or or people of color. Uh, There's certainly, I mean, there have been allegations about very specific, like, you know, to use Iowa, there was allegations that Iowa's culture was not um, suitable or beneficial to to black athletes. So there there are certainly individual cases, um, but it's not like, you know, I wrote for the 80 story. I'm not trying to like cast everyone in a bad light. It's just, let's use the data that you provide us. Like you chose those words. Let's take that and learn from it until we learn how much facilities matter. Like the fact that I'd said that, facilities were mentioned um if they were a sport basically you know less than basketball but more than baseball so basically (laughs) football basketball facilities and so we can learn from that that if you're going to recruit at the highest level and you're going to continue uh continue you know um raising money and winning championships is it facilities like the actual impact of what is a nicer locker room get you like like tangibly maybe just more space But it's what does that represent of, you know, additional fundraising and potentially higher recruits and stuff like that. And then what we learned or what we hopefully learned going forward, I would say, hopefully, just listen to athletes. And it sounds simple. And I know a lot of administrators and coaches do or think they do. But I think if we look at, you know, the We Are United post from the Pac-12 athletes back in August, is that, you know, they had called those demands in their post on the Players' Tribune. And when the Pac-12 referenced, like very initially in the days after they put demands in quotes. And it's a very, it's a small thing, but it's the fact that like, if you look at the definition of the word demands, like that's a very, that's a forceful, serious, like that's not like, oh, you know, like ask or like, you know, request, like it's, it's demand. It's a very strong, forceful word. And even seeing the fact that PAC-12 put demands or demands in quotes, it just showed that they weren't gonna take that request probably as serious as they should have. And, you know, they got past it. The, the, the only, uh, you know, what, only concessions, if you will, or the chance to opt out and not lose your scholarship. And then the chance to come back for a fifth year or to have your, you know, your rolling clock extended by one year. But it's the fact that there's so many other concerns about, you know, is it long-term medical health insurance? Um, is it maybe that you should have a six year scholarship, just blanket of why, if the whole importance and the, the point is higher education, or at least that's what the, the system tells us, then why force an athlete out too soon, especially if they're in a graduate program that might take two years but their, you know, their athletic scholarship ends after that first year of grad school. Are they gonna get that grad degree or not? So there's lots of good points and it gets into name image and likeness rights um, down the road. Is there some sort of, some sort of uh, you know collective bargaining or revenue sharing, which I know those are bigger, like big scary topics that you, you know, can't talk about or can't ever consider for college athletics. But I think given how quickly things could pick up this decade in terms of expanded athletes rights and the fact that Congress is getting involved because the NCAA has kind of dug its heels in and, and not been receptive to, to real meaningful change in those areas. Um, I would just hope that administrators, presidents, whomever, like seriously like, listens to the athletes, because they're they have a voice. They they taught us that the summer, they've they've probably always had one, they've just been punished or or shut down before it reached the public, before Twitter existed. Um, so I would just hope that they get they get uh, you know an open, friendly ear. That's all.
0: I couldn't agree more. I really think the athlete's voice is probably going to be the number one story for the next four or five years. I really, really do. Andy Wittry, thank you so much for spending some time with us. And I'll be sure to put a link to your your uh, blog or your, your newsletter in my uh, show notes and uh, keep up the great writing, man. I really just enjoyed you. It. it. And uh, you, you tackle some fascinating subjects. So thanks for joining us today.
1: Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, Karen. Really appreciate it.
0: You're welcome.